there have now been more injections than infections. It's Monday, February the 15th, 2021. More than 170 million vaccines have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, the Economist science correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loda, the health policy editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccine story as it enters its most critical phase. The speed of vaccine development already stands as one of the greatest achievements of medical science. But getting those vaccines out of the lab and into people's arms will be one of the most complex logistical challenges in history. In each episode of The Jab, we'll focus on a different part of the vaccine rollout and a different part of the world. We'll look at how vaccines are made, the challenges of distributing them, and the impact of all that on public health and global geopolitics. Today, we're asking what's at stake in the race between infections and injections. We'll discuss the three questions that really matter. Will the vaccines work? Are there adequate supplies? And will enough people take them? We speak to Michael Osterholm, an epidemiologist who's recently advised President Biden on America's response to the pandemic. Our Israel correspondent gets a jab in Jerusalem. And the Economist data team tells us what they've learned from the vaccination numbers so far. Joining us this week is Edward Carr, The Economist's deputy editor who oversees the paper's COVID coverage. Ed, how are you? Busy year? I've I've had a busy year and a kind of blistering week trying to keep a track of all the things that are happening. I mean, it's just astonishing how when you think this story is slowing down, it then accelerates and goes crazy again. Now, before we discuss this week's theme of what's at stake with the vaccine rollout, let's catch up with this week's news. Natasha, what story have you been following? Well, what's caught my eye um, this week was a resurgence of the virus in Latin America. I'm talking about countries like Brazil, Mexico, Bolivia, Peru, Colombia. And just between Brazil and Mexico, there's about 400,000 deaths, which is a huge number. And We worry a lot about poor countries that are not getting vaccinations. But my worry is that we're missing these countries like this in Latin America, where they're not poor, but they just have this big disparity between the COVID caseload and their access to vaccine. And that's really important. And I think some of these problems are actually of the country's own making. And I'm thinking Brazil here in particular has been the architect of a lot of its own misfortune in terms of its vaccination campaign. Do we know what um, is driving that particular resurgences there? Well, we're flying blind to a great extent. I mean, obviously, there's the suspicion that there are variants. We don't really have a good handle on this because there's not as much genetic sequencing being done. Equally, there could be a seasonal effect as well. So I think the long and short of it is we don't have a great handle on what's driving it. Uh, Talking about variants, Ed, The B117 variant, the one that is informally called the British variant, has now appeared in Denmark. Yeah, it's amazing what's happened. I mean, this this was picked up towards the end of last year for the first time. Denmark has a very good surveillance operation where they look at all the infections to see what the 
genetic makeup of the particular strains of virus they have. And it, it was picked up late last year, but it's gone from about 4% in the first week of 2021 to 27% in week five. That is an incredible spread. And, you know, it shows you pretty much, I think, that wherever this variant and, and other variants that spread faster picked up, they rapidly take over the, the pandemic and become the main feature of the pandemic. So it's a kind of worked example of the awesome power of these variants. Ed, Natasha, thank you both very much. Today, we're asking what's at stake as the world enters a crunch period in the global vaccine rollout. Three vaccines have been approved by stringent regulatory bodies. Others are close behind. At least nine vaccines have been approved for use in one or more countries. All of them appear to prevent severe cases of COVID-19. Yet while the world rolls up its sleeve, it's clear that vaccines are unlikely to see off COVID-19 completely. I'm Dr. Michael Osterholm. I direct the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Michael Osterholm is an epidemiologist who advised President Biden's transition team. Does he think the world is at an inflection point? You know, I think um, it's really a, a function of where you sit. And what I mean by that is if I'm in a high-income country, countries in the EU, in the United States, Canada, it is a situation where it appears that the dawn is coming. But when you think about it on a global perspective and then realize what the implications are, it's not quite that way. A pandemic by its very nature is a worldwide epidemic. We don't have what I would consider a comprehensive and realistic plan to get highly effective vaccines to the low and middle income countries right now. By the very nature of this being a pandemic, that means the cases will continue to occur in humans in low and middle income countries for the foreseeable future. If we want to know how to generate variants right now, we have lots of human infections. And they, in turn, will result from that pressure of whether it be, uh, you know, avoiding immune protection of the human or increasing the transmissibility or seriousness of, of illness. And at this point, we have to understand that the laboratory for new variants is going to keep coming out of the low and middle income countries till we come up with a way to protect them too. What will you be focusing on as you try and evaluate how quickly and how well the vaccines uh, will be getting us back to some sort of normal? Well, first of all, it's going to depend on, again, how well they work. Uh, I have every reason to believe that we'll see quite good success with uh, these vaccines with regard to B117. My problem is we won't have nearly enough. One of the challenges we have is the virus arriving and doing what it's going to do before the vaccines ever have a chance to be there because we just don't have the volume. There are certainly challenges in terms of the way that these variants will spread, the questions around whether we can get enough vaccines to people quickly enough. In terms of what path we thread through that, how optimistic are you? Long term, I worry about two things. One is how well will the vaccines that we have in high-income countries actually be used. We, I think, are seeing still clear evidence of vaccine hesitancy and, and just anti-vaccine feelings about these vaccines. And if we only get 60, 65% of the population vaccinated, 
um, we're still going to have severe challenges in terms of what happens with the virus in our communities. Long term, also another issue is what happens to the world. As I said earlier, what happens with these variants and how they impact us will in part be do the variants actually develop? Well, if we have lots of people getting infected day in and day out in low and middle income countries, we are going to see lots of variants created, which will then eventually make their way to the high income countries that have a high level of protection, but surely not one that doesn't have big leaks in it. So I think that's the challenge we have right now is how are we going to also envision a global response plan? Natasha, what do we know so far about vaccine efficacy? So at a basic level, all the vaccines work very well for the original wild-type virus. We've seen various reports of efficacy between different vaccines, different countries. They're really hard to compare because each trial would have used its own definition when it came to mild and severe cases. But when it comes to hospitalisation and death, there's a real clear signal from the vaccine. They all largely or entirely prevent these from happening. So that's a great reason to get them. When it comes to the new variants, the picture is much more complicated. These vaccines mostly look like they'll still be useful in preventing severe illness, death, even some moderate cases. But it does look like they're likely to allow more mild and moderate cases of COVID to happen. But the picture is still very much unfolding. Ed, what do you think is a successful or realistic outcome in in six months, in 12 months? Well, the hope is that, first of all, you can get health workers vaccinated. And, and that is really important because it increases the capacity of your health system to cope with illness of all kinds, including COVID-19. Then the hope is that you can get all of those who want it among your most vulnerable population, and that's both the elderly, but also those with comorbidities. And so you can get the death rate down and the rate of hospitalisation down. As Natasha said, to my mind, one of the really interesting things and important things about these vaccines is they seem to stop death and hospitalisation. And a disease that is widespread but doesn't kill you and doesn't force you to go to hospital is one that is much less threatening than one that, that does. There's one caveat to that, of course, which is long COVID. These series of sort of post-viral symptoms, a very wide spectrum of illness, poorly characterised and understood, but also seems to result in infections that are mild or or not severe enough to require admission to hospital. So there there is a caveat to that. But broadly, a disease which does not kill you and does not send you to hospital is just, you know, inherently less frightening and worrying than one that does. On the sort of our scientific understanding of these vaccines, what do we know that we don't know yet? Uh, We know we don't know lots of things. A big unknown is the extent to which vaccines prevent transmission. We've had good news in recent weeks. It looks like they do. Data from Israel, also from lab data um, from the AstraZeneca vaccine, does suggest that vaccination really does suppress the spread of infection. But the extent to which uh, vaccines do this is going to be really important in the outcomes we hope for. Does it prevent 40% of cases, 50%, 80%? You know, that's a number that has a really big consequence when you try and kind of model out what's going to happen. And then... uh, Let's come 
to variants, right, our great new vaccines may actually be less good at preventing the transmission of variants. There also may be less durability as well. And incidentally, we don't even know what the durability of the vaccines is against the wild-type virus. So that's another big black hole. And then with regards to the variants, it's worth emphasising that we're flying blind in many countries because we just don't do the genetic sequencing to understand where these variants are and in what numbers. And so that means also that going forward, many of our assumptions about transmission and outcomes in this disease may not apply going forward. And lastly, my very last unknown is uh, we just don't know how the virus is going to evolve. We have a, a hunch about you know some of the changes it likes to make, but evolution is, is not something we're able to predict. Ed, I'd like to ask you, given all of these uncertainties, given all of the ways that we're going, we don't exactly know what the future is, but, but do you think that COVID-19, this coronavirus, is going to be eventually eliminated? Or or do you think we're going to have to live with it? I'm certain we're going to have to live with it for a long time. As Osterholm said, you know, just getting the distribution of the vaccines around the world in order to get the amount of virus down so that it's not mutating will take, you know, years. The Economist Intelligence Unit says not till 2023, and it might be longer than that. If you then have to start producing boosters because you've had mutation at a rate that requires you to get kind of re-immunised in order to be protected from the virus, that'll just make things last longer. If, as Natasha said, people who have been inoculated can still transmit the virus, that's another reservoir of of potential mutations that that leads to sort of further infection. So I, I think this is going to be with us for a very long time. And as to whether it's going to be endemic, well, nobody can be absolutely certain, but you've got to assume that it will become endemic. And governments have got to start designing their health policy around that idea. And that's a pretty big change. I mean, we've been living in a sort of emergency COVID regime for the last year. And we put up with all sorts of things that we wouldn't have put up with unless it was an emergency. Governments have got to start thinking in terms of things that are sustainable socially and economically indefinitely. Ed, Natasha, thank you both very much. In a moment, we're going to find out whether there are enough vaccines to meet demand. But first, a reminder... If you'd like to read The Economist's coverage of the pandemic, then you should subscribe if you haven't done already. This week, for example, there's a really interesting piece looking at how well vaccines are likely to work in the coming months. Whether vaccines prevent transmission, how they'll deal with variants, these things are all being researched now, the data's being collected, and the briefing goes into details of all of that. To find the best offer for subscriptions, go to economist.com slash thejabpod. That's economist.com slash thejabpod. Israel is one of the big success stories in the global vaccine rollout. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu became the first Israeli to get the vaccine live on television back in December. Now, more than one-third of Israel's population of 9 million has had at least one dose. One of those is Anshul Pfeffer, The Economist's Israel correspondent. So, I'm in the bowels of the Jerusalem basketball arena, Israel's biggest indoor sports venue, which has been transformed into a massive vaccination centre. 
Anshul went for his jab last week. I've been handed a number, 940, and currently 937 is being vaccinated. So let's see how long we have to wait. So two minutes wait, and I'm already heading for booth number five for my jab. Shalom. So, two minutes in the booth, some pretty basic questions. Jab, needle in, out. The first aid responder who gave me my injection, a young man called Moshe, said that at the height of the rollout in the first few weeks, he would be injecting 110 people in one shift. Nowadays, it's more like 60 in a shift. And that's it, uh, 20 minutes gone and I'm already back walking to my car. Very efficient, in fact, almost a feeling by now of routine. Uh, it's almost a normal thing at this point. Israel offers the rest of the world a vision of the future, but Anshul told me that that vision isn't as rosy as it first seemed. The first few weeks, there was a lot of excitement, exuberance over the fact that it suddenly seemed as if we were about to turn a corner in Israel. And this was used by Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, to make wild promises that by the end of March, Israel will be the first country in the world to emerge from COVID-19. And over the last few weeks, a lot of that excitement has dissipated, partly because Israel's also been experiencing one of the highest rates of infection around the world. The British variant has swept through Israel and has both led to a spike in cases of younger COVID patients and higher death rates. And Israel was entering its third nationwide lockdown at the same time when it began vaccinating. And the lockdown, unlike the previous two, hasn't been successful in bringing down infection rates. The lockdown officially ended on February the 7th, but most of the restrictions remain in place. So a lot of anger, quite a lot of muddled thinking here in Israel about what's the best way for the country to negotiate its way out of COVID in the coming weeks and months. You've painted a quite a complex picture, but what do we know from the data that has been collected about the impacts of the vaccine? The over 60 age group, which is the age group which were vaccinated first, you can see in the data that the number of serious cases of people over 60 has reduced by about 40%. So that's dramatic and that's almost certainly due to vaccinations. We've only seen a very small number of people who have been vaccinated being hospitalized. So it's very clear that the vaccines are working. But what's also clear is that vaccination is part of a much wider picture when it comes to the pandemic. If new variants keep coming along and if lockdowns and other restrictions aren't observed, then coronavirus will still be with us for a while. So what's next? I mean, will the restrictions change in the coming months as more of the population get their jabs? Well, restrictions are changing not so much because of the jabs, but because the public is chafing and the government can't keep Israel under lockdown for so long. So things are starting to open up. One of the main challenges facing the government now, after they've vaccinated 40% of the population, is how to go about 
doing it for the next 40% to reach 80%. Because it seems that younger people, people in their 30s and 40s, aren't rushing to be vaccinated in the same way that older people were. And there's a very serious conversation now in Israel over what kind of incentives and perhaps even sanctions can be used to try and encourage more people to get vaccinated, so to double the number that's been achieved so far. Natasha, what do we know about how many vaccines are intended to be produced this year? Will there be enough? Well, for a long time, we thought that it wasn't going to be possible to produce enough and vaccine makers have increased their production targets. But I've been chatting with Richard Hatchett this week. He runs an international vaccine coalition called CEPI and he thinks that we're entering a much more complex phase of the pandemic. And so if we need to scale up the production of vaccines for these new variants while continuing to produce vaccines against the dominant strains, something he thinks is going to have to give. And this is a new problem and could create new supply constraints over those that we already face. So I think from where we're sitting now in February, it doesn't look like it's going to be possible to produce enough of the vaccine that uh, is needed around the world. It's also worth noting that production is lumpy. And so the sort of very tight constraints we're seeing right now could certainly ease towards the end of the year. There are more vaccines on the way. I mean, the Pfizer vaccine, of course, was the first to be approved by um, a stringent regulator. And then we, the AstraZeneca vaccine came soon after that. And Johnson & Johnson have come have got a vaccine, Novavax. Natasha, tell me what vaccines should we be looking out for as the number of these uh, increases? I think we should be looking forward to seeing more support for the Russian vaccine, Sputnik, and also for the Chinese vaccine, the one from Sinopharm, the one from Sinovac. And success for those vaccines will greatly widen the kind of world supply there. So that's definitely something to look out for. Approval is a complex process. You need more than one regulator to approve a vaccine. So, you know, the British regulator approved AstraZeneca first. We want the the WHO is now supporting it. Um, Has it actually approved it, Natasha? No, it hasn't. So what the WHO has said is that it recommends it for use. It recommends it for use in all age groups. And so this is like a scientific advisory committee and they kind of get together and say, we think it's a good vaccine. But when it comes to sort of regulatory approval, you've got to do sort of all sorts of other things like inspect factories and stuff like that. So that's what we're waiting for from the WHO with regards to AstraZeneca. And then we'll get something like an emergency approval um, and that will make the vaccine much easier to distribute around the world. What, what do we know, Natasha, about how well or how easily these vaccines might be distributed? Because that's another large challenge. I think one of the most certain things that we can say is that we won't distribute them effectively. And that's kind of why we're here really having this this conversation. It's good to, um, be, it's good to be clear about that right from the beginning. <laughs> Um, We're going to make a mess of this in all sorts of interesting ways. It's a huge undertaking. Um, There's delays, there's going to be wastage, bottlenecks, mistakes. 
there's wastage in normal vaccine supply chains. I think it's like about 25% or something like that. And now you've got these ultra cold vaccines, which are quite difficult. We've had a million doses of AstraZeneca vaccine arrive in South Africa and South Africa is now not sure if it wants to use them. And they're thinking about selling them on, but they have a six month expiry date. So you can kind of see all the issues coming already. There will be countries that want the vaccine but can't get it. There'll be countries that have it but are not using it. And, you know, this is the biggest mass vaccination in history. We've never done this before. Ed, just can I ask you for a final point on this, which is that some countries have the vaccine because they're technologically advanced and have created it themselves. Some can buy it. And then this is obviously going to create a race over the next year, two years for who can actually get the vaccines into their population. But there's political tensions here as well in that having a vaccine and being able to give it to a country that can't afford it or hasn't got its own vaccine is a kind of soft power. So where do you see the politics of this going in the the coming years? It's already happening, of course. You're seeing China and Russia using bilateral vaccine deals as part of their soft powers. It's really interesting. For instance, in Eastern Europe, countries like Hungary have gone bilaterally with China and Russia against the whole idea of the vaccination to be another kind of symbol of European solidarity. And it's very easy to decry vaccine nationalism, which means that there is an unequal distribution of doses of vaccine and that, you know, more people die than who would have needed to. And that's completely right. But vaccine nationalism also had a role, don't forget, in getting these vaccines out. I mean, it was a sense of countries really rushing ahead, particularly the United States with Operation Warp Speed, um, that led to as much money and work going into the financing of the research and manufacturing of the plants and everything that's got the vaccines out there in the first place. So, you know, even vaccine nationalism, which is um, on the whole a very bad thing, has, has actually had, you know, some positive role to play right at the beginning in getting the vaccines out there. Natasha, Ed, thank you both very much. Now it's time for my favourite part of today's podcast. James Fransham from the Economist data team has been monitoring the world's best performing vaccination programmes. We've enlisted his help to try something special for the podcast. You're about to hear some music, but not just any music. The number of piano notes played represents the percentage of people in a country who've had a single dose of vaccine. If you hear a piano and a violin played at the same time, it tells you what percentage of people have had both their doses. Serbia only started vaccinating its citizens three weeks ago, but is already one of the best performers on a jabs-per-head basis. 7% of its population have received their first shot. 1% have gotten a second dose. In absolute terms, the US leads the world. It has administered 45 million doses, so about a third of the global total. But there are lots of people living there, about 330 million. And so on a per head basis, 10% of Americans have received one COVID jab and 3% of the population have had a second jab. (music) 
Bahrain is next in our table, with 13% of the population having received a first dose. And as you can hear, however, no one has yet received a booster shot. Britain continues its impressive run. 19% of the country have now been partially vaccinated. But, unlike many other countries, it is waiting longer, 12 weeks or thereabouts, to administer follow-up doses. So for that reason, just 1% of the population have had a second shot. Israel remains top of the vaccine table. A whopping 43% of Israelis, over half of all adults, have now received their first dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. And 26% of Israelis are now fully vaccinated. So those are the best performing countries this week. James, Anshul mentioned that the rates of vaccination in Israel were very high at the beginning, but that the number of vaccines is now slowing down. Yeah, it's really interesting that Anshul mentioned that because actually that's something I've been observing this week. So we're tracking these numbers on a kind of looking at over the over 28 days. And to compare countries, we look at per head of population. So we do a kind of seven day moving average per 100,000 population. And actually at the peak of vaccination, so that was about 10 days ago, Israel was vaccinating nearly 2% of its population a, a day. It's really quite a, a fabulous number. But that's actually since four quite sharply and it's at about 1.2% a day now. It's still pretty rapid to be fair. The UK is also vaccinating pretty quickly but that it's at half that rate so it's about 0.6% of the population per day. And the UK is probably one of the other really good countries at uh, the the rate it's, it's been going. Yeah, it is doing really well. It, it, it's basically vaccinated um, basically everyone over the age of 70. And there was a call this week that people that haven't been vaccinated are over the age of 70 to, to contact the NHS and request a, a vaccination. My mum, uh, who is actually 66, she was vaccinated yesterday and her partner will be vaccinated tomorrow. So she was super excited about that. And that's rolling out pretty rapidly. I think once you go down the age groups, it will get tricky and trickier to perhaps contact contact people because you know younger people are, are less likely to be registered with a with a GP in the UK for example so i think vaccinations will slow down and obviously because the UK has this 12 week schedule once they start having to produce or provide second doses then obviously the rate of new vaccination will also slow down now this podcast is obviously one way people can keep up to date with what the data team's up to um, where else might people find information about the things you're tracking we're launching a new newsletter tomorrow. It's going to feature the best of our data journalism. It's called Off the Charts, and you can sign up at economist.com slash off the charts. Natasha, what proportion of the population needs to be inoculated if we want life to go back to some sort of normality? Well, this is a $6 million question, isn't it? It's going to depend on all sorts of things. I mean, the short answer is we don't know. It will depend on the efficacy of the vaccine that's being used, how elusive the variants are, 
how much the vaccination reduces transmission, how many people will accept the vaccines. I think if we get to about 75% of the adult population, we should get good suppression. I think that's the hope anyway. Also, I'd just say normal's really hard to define. It depends who you are. What is normal anyway? It's easy to imagine doing things like sending the children to school, going to supermarkets, maybe with a mask still, maybe meeting up in restaurants. What's kind of like harder to imagine is you know, things like mass gatherings, are people going to be singing in church? Those sort of things are really hard to predict. And I'm talking here about the sort of well-organised countries, maybe OECD countries that managed to get vaccine and to vaccinate fairly efficiently. What uh, Michael Osterholm was pointing out in the first package really was about the sort of other countries where it's going to be much more of a challenge going forward, not only in the next year, but in the coming years. And it's not just going to be the countries that don't have vaccine, because if you look at countries like Russia, like India, they have a good vaccine supply, but it just looks like it's going to take them longer to vaccinate because they're just bigger countries. They don't have such good healthcare systems. In this podcast, we've been talking a lot about how to get vaccines made and distributed. And we've kind of kept our fingers crossed, I guess, that, that all of it's going to go well. There are challenges ahead, of course, but you know, this is very well organised and it's, it's all good news. There are other forces at play here, though. In the paper this week, we talk about hesitancy. I mean, and not just anti-vax movements. Ed, how important are those in terms of the world's attempts to try and get control of this virus? Yeah, Natasha wrote a great piece on on this this week. So I, I'm going to draw on her expertise in this answer. Um, I mean, Channel it, Natasha. The, the point that comes across, I, I think, from from her work is just how complex vaccine hesitancy is. There's a sort of hardcore of anti-vaxxers who, for reasons of both that they happen to see the world in that way and also they make money from being anti-vaxxers, are out there to try and put people off. But um, there's a, a larger and rather fluid population of people who are just a bit uncertain and they're unclear. And hesitancy is a very good word to describe the way in which they can be persuaded to take vaccines if they are confident that it's in their interests and, and that they're safe. So there's a, something of a, I guess, a sort of tug of war for those people between you know, public health officials who want to try and control the pandemic and to try and have a healthy population and the committed anti-vaxxers who, for those various reasons, are pulling them back in the other direction. And a lot rests on this. I mean, take that population of young people that we were speaking about earlier who might be more hesitant because it's not really in their own interests. Well, as Michael Hosterholm made clear, those guys are a reservoir of virus where mutation will carry on. And they're also a source of infection. So for all the people in the vulnerable groups who, for whatever reason, don't get vaccinated, they could be infected by one of those, those young people. And the disease is much more likely to find them quickly if there are a lot of unvaccinated younger people. We are going to be coming back to this again and again. And when I was listening to Anshul, I was saying, aha, I knew it, because it always seemed obvious to me that the case has to be made to the younger generation that they need to get this vaccine. And if we get to a situation where, you know, large numbers of people um, in those age cohorts are just not going to take the vaccine, 
then we're not going to get to the stage where we can suppress this virus adequately. And I would also say what makes it even more challenging is that, you know, we can't yet use these vaccines in children. And if you wanted to get to herd immunity, normally you would count on vaccinating a certain proportion of children. Well, we can't do that yet either. It strikes me that as amazing as the medical science has been to try and get us these vaccines in such a record amount of time using brand new technologies, perhaps the harder war over the coming years will be um, in, in the PR around making sure enough people just take the vaccines. As a writer, I will tell you that the things that hurt most, the kind of bits of brilliance that you write on the page and your editor sort of strikes down. And one of the kind of brilliant little things that I thought I had written in this week's briefing was that developing vaccines is a matter of science and technology, but vaccination is a social phenomenon. And I think that that's a really kind of useful way of framing it is that vaccination is a social phenomenon. We have to get that right. We have to get the messaging right. Natasha, Ed, thank you both very much. Now, before we go, is there anything that um, you both have come across this week that you want to share with your listeners? Things that you perhaps think haven't had much attention? Well, what caught my eye was how the COVID response minister in New Zealand was talking and this goes back to our conversation, right, about hesitancy. He was talking about starting a conversation about vaccinating. And it's fascinating that in this country, you just don't see a sort of huge sense of urgency to vaccinate that you have in countries that have a high caseload in Europe and in America. And so that's like a really big social divergence, isn't it? It's like, you know, Lots of people rushing uh, in some countries and then in New Zealand, they're kind of like, oh, well, let's talk about this vaccination thing. And so it seems to me that the absence of a sort of threat has actually created a sort of much bigger hill to climb in New Zealand. And I think that we're going to have to watch for exactly the same sort of things in places with low caseloads. And so that would be Australia, Taiwan, Singapore and so on. Yeah, I think I think Natasha's absolutely right. I mean, it's it goes and it goes in beyond that. There's a sort of question of you know these zero COVID tolerance, you know, zero tolerance of COVID countries like New Zealand and indeed China have a real difficult problem about how they get out of that uh, because getting out of it means accepting an endemic disease that then starts causing deaths and and cases. You know, even once you've been vaccinated, so that's kind of really interesting. But for me, the other thing that I, that struck me was was how France has surrendered perhaps one of the last great sort of bastions of civilization by uh, repealing a law that prevented people from eating lunch at their own desks, kind of liberté, égalité and déjeuner, as, as some people have put it. <laughs> and now you'll actually be able to sit at your desk and have a sandwich if you're French, like, like the rest of us miserable people who'd seem to do that every day in lockdown. The sad desk salad. Desk salad. It's just a sign that, uh, you know, eating al desco, as they say, is, is kind of one of the many social changes that, that COVID will bring and they'll come up, come up uh, over the next year in all sorts of places. If for nothing else, my, I mean, I know that my French family will detest this completely. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Ed, Natasha, thank you both very, very much indeed. You're welcome. Thanks, Alan. And that's all from us. Thank you for listening. The show's producer is Duncan Barber. The sound designer is Nico Rofast. The editor is John Shields. Thanks also to Jason Hoskin and to Daniel Lloyd-Evans for additional production and sound design. 
If you like the podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more on the jab next week when we'll look at how the different vaccines actually work.